Also on page 874, if you'd like to use a Bible from the church, you could just grab one, turn to page 874 or Luke 15, beginning at verse 11. Thank you guys for helping us to sing to the Lord this morning. Grateful for how you help us and lead us. But for now, we continue our worship through the reading and proclamation of God's word. And this is what God's word says to us this morning. Verse 11. And he said, There was a father who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. And no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let us eat and celebrate. For my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing, and he called to one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come. Your father has killed the fat cat and calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you and Never disobeyed your command. You never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. 
But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. He said, son, you are always with me. All that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. You may be seated. Father, there's no word like your word, so we're grateful to have your word. Father, it's, a, it's precious. Every word of it is true. And yet it's not old, outdated truth. It's eternally true. It is forever alive and relevant to our lives. And so help us to worship you now by the hearing and receiving of your word. May you stir in our hearts by the same spirit that pinned, that moved on, upon Luke to pin these words. May you be glorified in the work of your word in our lives. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we continue our time together this summer looking at some of the parables of Jesus. Remember, um, parables deal in comparisons. Jesus will tell a story or Jesus will refer to an object. And those stories and objects are used to, to make a point of comparison about uh, some sort of spiritual truth or spiritual reality that, that is to promote some sort of spiritual purposes and accomplish some sort of spiritual instruction for us. Now we come to this parable. Perhaps this parable may be the most well-known of all the parables Jesus told. That doesn't mean it's the most understood. It just means that who among us this morning is not familiar with this parable, at least on some level, and yet, what's the name of this parable? We, we typically, we traditionally call this the parable of the prodigal son. Singular. I am not going to fight with you over that one. You'd whoop me. Uh, but I would suggest that there's better descriptions for what to call this parable. I, I, one better description would be to call it the parable of the prodigal sons, plural. But I would suggest an even better uh, t title for it. Look at verse 11 again. There was a man who had two sons. I would suggest that a best description of this beautiful parable is that it is the parable of the loving father who seeks to save his prodigal children. The parable of the loving father who has two boys. They're different. The younger brother is the one that we are more familiar with. We, and uh, Lord willing, uh, next week we will... Look again at this parable with a view to the younger brother. But this morning, I would like to offer the notion that 
It is the older brother who is really the main point of comparison in this parable. It's not that the younger brother is irrelevant. He's very relevant in this parable. And there's much instruction we can glean by looking particularly at the younger brother. But for this morning, let's, let's, let's try to focus our thoughts on what does this parable tell us about the older brother. The older brother in this parable is actually being compared to the scribes and the Pharisees, the religious leaders of Jerusalem and of Israel at this time. Look at verse 1, going back to the top of chapter 15. This sets the context for us. This is why I think it's best to take the main comparison of this as the older brother, because the comparison is being made. Something, some sort of statement is being made, if you would, about the Pharisees and the scribes. It says, now, the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, that is, Jesus, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled. Same sort of word notion that we would have of what the people of Israel did in the book of Numbers when they grumbled against God. Well, now here are the scribes and the Pharisees, uh, the top-tier religious leaders in Jerusalem at this time, I suppose, are grumbling saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Now, this level of grumbling that is stated here in, verse, in chapter 15 is preceded by an inquiry from the Pharisees and scribes in recorded in Luke chapter 5. Back in Luke chapter 5, the Pharisees and the scribes are scratching their heads, wondering what in the world is Jesus doing hanging out with, with, with tax collectors and sinners. And, and you understand in that day and age when it's referring to tax collectors, it's, it's really, I'm not making a statement about today, but in that day and age, just, these are just, basic cheats and scoundrels. So Jesus is hanging out with sinners, cheats, scoundrels, low lives. The scribes and the Pharisees are, were quite perplexed. And so they asked him in Luke chapter 5, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? In Luke chapter 5, verses 31 and 32, then Jesus gives them an answer. They still haven't quite grasped the answer here in Luke 15, and, and they've taken their inquiry and turned it into a grumbling. But he answers them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I have come uh, not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. I don't think they got that in Luke 5. I don't think they understood the import of what Jesus said in Luke chapter 5. And so now what was confusing in Luke chapter 5 to them is now a matter of, of grievous complaint. He's still doing it. 
He's still eating with despicables, low lives, sinners, cheats, scoundrels. And it's in that context that Jesus tells a story, or three stories. One story with three parts, the third part being the capstone, or three different stories. And so he begins there uh, in, uh, in verse 3. So he told them this parable. And the first parable, or the first part of this parable, is then listed there in verses 3 through 7. And then um, uh, in verse 8, he tells a second parable or a second facet of this parable. And that goes down through verse 10. And then I picked up in our reading this morning at verse 11, the, 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 the capstone of the parable or the third aspect of the parable or the third parable, however you want to slice it up. But what I want you to see is the conclusion he reaches, particularly after each of the first two parables. Look at verse 7. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Or the conclusion after the second parable, listed there in verse 10, just so I tell you, there is more joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Now, those preceding parables, before we get to verse 11, are talking about a lost sheep that a shepherd finds, and when he finds, he's happy, he rejoices, or in verse 8, the second parable, it's talking about a lost coin and the woman of the house who goes and retrieves that lost coin. And when she finds it, she's happy. She rejoices. When a lost sheep is found, when a lost coin is recovered, and when a lost sinner is made alive and found, then we see that this is a great moment of profound happiness. This is a great moment of incredible joy for the angels of heaven, for the people of heaven, for the angels of God. It's a happy moment for God himself, but it ain't no happy moment for the Pharisees and the scribes. You don't mean to tell me we're going to let them kind of people into God's heaven, are you? Yes! Now, let's press this a little bit farther. This is why Jesus ate with tax collectors and sinners. They were lost, and they needed to be found. They were dead and needed to be made alive. Now, I sense that at this point, 
we probably confuse some things here in terms of even our own relationship to those who do not know Jesus. And might I just press in on exactly what Jesus is doing and not doing. Jesus did not merely eat with them. He sought them out and called them to repentance. It's not the moment of joy when Jesus merely eats with sinners. It's the sinners that Jesus eats with repent. And they turn to him, and they turn from their sin. They turn from their reckless ways. They turn from their rebellion. It is not simply because Jesus, or you and I, befriend sinners, but because we seek sinners that they might repent. That we seek sinners that we might call them to repent. Why would we call sinners to repent? Because joy is at stake. Why would we turn them and direct them to go to Jesus? Why? Because happiness is at stake. And nothing less than repentance will do that. Remember two weeks ago, we gave a brief description about what this repentance is. We'll see this played out a little bit more even next week when we look at the other son. But repentance, remember, is an internal change of heart that results in an external change of direction. The deep love that Jesus had for sinners. Thank you. I needed that. For some reason, I'm floundering up here. The deep love that Jesus had for sinners is a love that was manifested in, on the one hand, meeting them where he found them in their sin, in their scoundrel ways. And yet when he finds cheats and scoundrels, he calls them to turn from their cheating, scoundrel ways. You see, it is a false love. It is a fake compassion to allow sinners to continue in their sin without calling them to repentance. It is not love, nor is it compassion, to affirm that which the Scriptures condemn. It is not love, nor is it compassion to approve of that which the scriptures define as sin. You and I are not loving those who do not know Jesus unless we initiate a relationship with them that would lead to an opportunity to call them to repentance. Because you can't be more loving than Jesus. Oh, he loved tax collectors and sinners. 
He loved cheats and scoundrels. <laughs> That's why he loves people like us. And he takes us where he finds us, but he immediately calls us to leave that behind and follow him. Jesus did not embrace, nor did he overlook sin. He came to rescue sinners, and that entailed calling sinners to repentance, and yet that is initiated by going to them. And he did just that. He went to sinners. Now, we see how that explains the younger brother. We're told explicitly he gave his life over to reckless living. He was a rebel. But we're supposed to be talking about the older brother, the good kid. It seems less obvious. Um, it's, and it seems, well, we just don't know what to do with. Um, how is this older brother a prodigal as well? Maybe there's different kinds of prodigals. Maybe there's, there's different kinds of rebels. Maybe there are rebels who are given over to reckless living, squandering their resources, and maybe there are rebels who give themselves over to a religious kind of life that in their own mind elevates them with a kind of pompous self-righteousness. So one's reckless and one's religious. But they are each rebels of whom it is required of them if they wish to come to the Father, they must repent. Look specifically at verse 25. This really zones us in on the older problem child. The one that's less obvious of a problem child. I was never a problem child, by the way. You need to talk to my brother about that one. So, I am no less in need of Jesus, however. Now, his older son was in the field. <clears throat> this is after the, boys, the younger boys come home, party breaks out. And as he came, he drew near to the house, and he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants, and he said, what do these things mean? And he, and he said to him, I mean, the servant is he's giddy. Uh, he says, uh, your brother has come. Your father has come. Safe and sound. Booey. But he was angry. Refused to go in. The older son 
hates his father. The older son certainly has disdain toward his worthless younger brother. It says there in verse 30, but when this son of yours, I didn't even say my brother, but when this son of yours uh, came, he has, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. Oh, it makes me sick. He not only has disdain toward his worthless, quote-unquote, younger brother, he has contempt for his unfair, disgusting father. He throws parties for worthless younger brothers. He hates his father, even though he's highly responsible. Look, these many years, verse 29, look, these many years I have served you and never disobeyed your command. And you never gave me a young goat. Look at what he says. That I might celebrate with my friends. He doesn't want to celebrate with his father. Why? He doesn't love his father. He's just as much of a rebel, and yet in a different manifestation as the younger son who hated his father until he came to his senses. Here, this older son who hates his father, who would take his father's stuff and enjoy it with his friends, which is what the younger son ironically did. Neither one of them want the father. They just want the father's stuff so that they can go do what they really want. Each of them are rebels, recklessly and or religiously. But here's what I want us to make sure we don't forget here, and that is this. The father loves both of his boys. The same father who, when he saw the younger boy starting to uh, bumble and fumble his way home, ran after his younger son, is now this same father, it says there, when, he re- when the older son refused to come in, in verse 29, but his father came out and entreated him. Come in, let, let's, let's celebrate. Let's have a feast Let's throw a party. And yet he refuses. The older brother sees himself as worthy and deserving of more than he's already received. What has he received? Everything I have is yours, the father tells him. It's already yours. You're living in the father's house with all the father's good provisions. It's not really, really wants. Doesn't want the father. Now, that's a certain irony of that. Because in, in the comparison, he's, he's reflecting the 
the lives and the commitments of the Pharisees and the scribes. These are highly religious people. These are people that, painting with broad strokes, are committed to the concept of a highly moral life. And it is not the condemnation of a highly moral life that's being tossed here, dealt with here in this passage. But what is being condemned is the same mindset of the scribes and the Pharisees that they thought because of their religiosity, because of their perceived moral greatness, that they somehow have accumulated a life that is deserving and meritorious of God's blessings. But that's not true. Neither the scribes nor the Pharisees, neither me or you, could live such a life that we would merit the God who made us and his love. We may not be a reckless rebel, But there are certain ways that we could be a religious rebel who do our moral, good, religious things that the Bible otherwise commends, but that we do those from a wrong heart, from a wrong posture, from a wrong standing point, based upon a wrong motivation. We do these things that, that, that we might set God up, that he might take notice of what incredible thing we are. And he might say, my, my. I love beautiful people like that. And then we fail to understand who and what we truly are. You and I do not have to, nor are we able to merit God's love. He came to seek and to save that which was lost. He came to seek and to save lost rebels who live recklessly, and he came to seek and to save lost rebels who live religiously. Now, don't misunderstand what I'm trying to say. I'm not commending a a rebellious, reckless life. The scriptures commends a righteous life. What I am saying is that our notions of our righteousness uh, as the basis for meriting God's favor is fundamentally flawed. Even, even though you might be better than me religiously and morally or vice versa, let's just come, we can figure out later who's got the top dog spot here. Before a holy God, there's there a one of us who can accumulate the goods of a moral religious life that would earn God's good blessings and favor. In fact, I would suggest to you that the sooner you and I realize I'm not spiritually well. In fact, I'm I'm deathly sick. In fact, I'm spiritually dead. The sooner God's love shines brighter into our hearts.
is, it is, it is, it is not profound uh, to, to hear someone say to us, God loves you, and, and then our, in our own frame of mind, we're like, well, yeah, what's not to love? I mean, look at this. Huh? No takers? All right. But it's a whole other thing to understand as the younger son finally realizes, I am unworthy to be called your son. It is in that moment that we see something of the Father's love for sinners. It is that moment that truly the light bulb of God's spirit goes off in our hearts. It is that moment when the God who let light shine in the darkness shone in our hearts to give to us the light of the image of the glory of God in the face of Jesus. It is at that moment that we behold the love of God. Sinners, whether we have lived a life of reckless living or we have lived a life of religious fastidiousness, we are in need of the Father's love that can come only through the seeking and saving work of Jesus. So what did the older brother need to repent of? I mean, after all, he came to seek and to save the lost. He came to call sinners to repentance. Well, the older brother needed to repent of his perspective that he was well, that he was healthy. That's not true. He wasn't well. He wasn't healthy. Secondly, and relatedly, lest we just end this thing in despair. Not only did the older brother need to realize that he was not well, but he needed to realize that he needed Jesus, who gives life and everything else needed to live life with God as our fathers, as our father. You see, there are two conditions that reflect a lostness, a death. There's the first one, the most obvious one, and that is you could be living your life with a total disregard for God's law. You are, you are into yourself, and you are oriented by yourself, and you do only that which pleases yourself, and you are a rebel toward God. And you are a sinner in need of a Savior. But there's another kind of death or lostness. And that is that you live a life of, of total confidence that you, by your own merit, by your own will, by your own abilities, you have earned and deserved God's merit. You too are a rebel against God. For whether you have been religious or Reckless, or some other variation. Whichever it is, you and I 
need Jesus. You and I must turn to Jesus. And that's why he came. To bring us life. To retrieve us from our lost condition. Turn to Jesus. Trust only in him. And welcome to the Father's house. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for all that your word teaches us. We're thankful that you have sent your son to rescue people like us. No matter what end of the spectrum we are on with how we have ordered and lived and orchestrated our lives. We're just thankful that you, through your Son, by your Spirit, save sinners, of whom we are the utmost. And so we turn and trust in Jesus. Whether it's for the first time, some may do so this morning, but the rest of us wish to do it again and again and again and again. Thank you for the grace to repent and turn to Jesus. For we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand and sing this song together.